and ask you to turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 37, if you will. We, <clears throat> we looked at this a bit last week, those of you who uh, were with us, this will be initially at least, this will be familiar, but the reason I want to go back to it is because uh, today we're going to, uh, to look at all of the remainder of chapter 9. That means we're going to go through verse 62 because this is a unit that has eight encounters. This is an odd uh, sort of transition piece that's, um, that illustrates fascinatingly, I think, uh, the difference between Luke and Matthew, the difference between Luke and John. That is a person who was not there as an eyewitness to everything. I don't know what Luke was an eyewitness to. Uh, but he wasn't one of the 12, whereas Matthew and John were, and therefore that's uh, part of the reason that you have different, uh, different issues covered. But um, it's, it's interesting what Luke does with this section, uh, with these eight. Uh, basically, the overarching message here is the cost of discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, uh, this is what, uh, what we're going to encounter and and it's uh, thought-provoking and humbling and a lot of other things. Some commentators compare this section of Luke with Pilgrim's Progress. And they come up with uh, catchy, you know, uh, Mr. Faithless, uh, Mr. Stay-at-home, Mr. Things of that nature. Uh, I have no problem with that. It's, it's not a bad way to look at it because they're so short. They're, they're eight vignettes. Most of them are only two verses long. So we're going to go through this again, that we're transitioning into a section, a large section, the central section of Luke, and uh, we'll see what, uh, what that transition is going to mean for us. But first, again, back to verse 37, uh, you may recall 37 to 43 is the story of uh, Jesus and, and the three, the, the big three, some people call them Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and they've just come down. Uh, verse 37 says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that mountain is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus, uh, well, there's no argument. I was going to say argument, arguably, but this is, there's no argument here. Jesus and these three disciples have seen uh, the greatest illustration and, and eyewitness um, revelation of the glory of God that any human being was ever allowed to see. And they've just come down from that experience and a crowd meets them at the bottom. Uh, verses 37, 38, 39, out of that crowd comes an anguished father. And you recall this father has a son, it's an only son, uh, who is under assault by a demonic spirit. In verses 37, 38, 39, you uh, recall this uh, son is seized by this spirit, convulses, foams at the mouth. He's cast into fire from time to time. He's cast into water from time to time. He is scarred because of all of these experiences. He's made deaf and he's made dumb by this spirit. So this father is understandably in very great anguish. But the greatest shock perhaps is in verse 40, which says, and I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
Uh, this is, uh, these, of course, were the nine disciples when Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain, then the other nine are, are down uh, dealing with this, and the Father apparently has, has asked them to cast out this demon, and even though they have just recently been able to do that, they cannot now. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's shocking, and it's, and it's um, puzzling to everyone involved. Now, Jesus in verse 41, and this is going to be a theme we're going to see through all eight of these vignettes. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And whoever Jesus is addressing there, it's at the very least these disciples uh, as <coughs> Faithless and twisted, those are, are words, as, uh, as we've seen uh, before, that came from Deuteronomy, uh, from Moses' um, song, really. Uh, but Jesus, uh, nonetheless, ends with compassion, and he tells his father, bring your son here. It's very important, by the way, through all eight of these vignettes to remember that, that Jesus knows what's going on behind the scene. And when I say behind the scene, I mean in the hearts of these people, not necessarily things that they have ever expressed to anyone else, but Jesus knows uh, the hearts of all of these people. Uh, so he tells his father, bring your son here. And in verses 42 and 43, he rebukes the spirit, heals the boy and gives the boy back to his father. And the crowd is amazed. And it says the crowd is amazed at his majesty. Now that word majesty is, is um, a word that has been used relative to that transfigurational experience up on the mountaintop. Uh, all of the glory, and of course, we don't know what, what was seen there. Uh, Luke was not on top of that mountain. Luke doesn't know what was seen. Uh, Peter, if you remember, Peter, James, and John are not going to talk about what they saw up on that mountain, probably among other reasons, because they couldn't have explained it very well, even had they tried. Uh, but this word majesty may have some sort of uh, something to do with that, that, that kind of glory experience. Uh, but at any rate, uh, this is this father of this boy. When you read about this account in Mark, that's where you see that fairly famous line where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. An interesting uh, statement, especially in light of what we're going to see with the seven stories that are going to follow in short order. But the bottom line is be faithful. Uh, some people, again, label this little vignette as faithless. I don't see this father as faithless. Um, we're all sinful people. There is no perfect faithful person out there. I see this father, as a matter of fact, as a very faithful person to the degree that he had knowledge. This is a man who's, uh, of course, we don't know who this was, uh, but uh, Jesus has not been out there really in the public to the extent uh, that he's going to be from this point forward. But at any rate, this man, uh, I think it's a little bit unfair to label him as faithless. But uh, he says, I believe, I just, uh, what he believes in specifically is going to be 
uh, up for grabs. And this is another important aspect to remember. Every one of these vignettes, when you read through them, you tend to put yourself in this position. But what we need to remember is that all of the people we're about to read about, they, didn't, they don't know about a cross. They don't know about a resurrection. They don't know about an ascension. They don't know any of the things that you and I know. So whatever excuses we may want to uh, extend to some of these people, we have none of them. Uh, so with that in mind, we go forward to the next grouping, which is simply verses uh, 43b. That's where the next paragraph begins, 44 and 45. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Again, it's, it's tempting to try to delve into the psychology of these disciples, but I, I would remind you, these, these people are not dealing with a full deck that you and I have. Uh, these, these people have not, they don't know what's coming down the line over the next year or so with Jesus, much less the, uh, the, the granting of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. All those are signal events that you and I have that none of these people did. That's, that's why these gospels, when you read through the gospels, all four of them, you're, that too is a large transition point. The whole of the gospel narrative is, is God becoming incarnate and interacting in various ways with people uh, that, um, that were before our time. But anyway, in verses 43 and 44, he sees, Jesus sees the disciples and the crowd marveling, and he basically says, snap out of it. Now, they're marveling because they just saw something very marvelous. Uh, they saw this, this young man who has been, was possessed of some, in some description or other, and they saw Jesus heal him completely and rectify a situation that it was absolutely horrifying. And that's what, understandably, I think they were focused on. But Jesus is, again, speaking kind of firmly to these disciples. And he says, understand that I'm going to be betrayed. What Jesus is saying here is the essence of my coming as an incarnate uh, savior to the world to go to a cross is not found in the miracles. Christianity's power is not found in the miraculous. It certainly is powerful and miraculous from time to time. I would argue, in essence, every minute of every day, uh, there, is, uh, there is a powerful miracle in the essence of, of Christianity. But, but the healings and the uh, spectacular are not the essence of the gospel, nor are they the essence of Christianity. The essence comes on the other uh, 99.9% .9 of living. And that's what uh, Jesus is trying to get across. The primary message of the gospel uh, is not in the miracles or the success stories, but in the sufferings and the death. Uh, I remember a wonderful, wonderful professor at Westminster named Dick Gaffin, a very careful scholar. 
in fact, so so careful that you, as a student, you finally, with me, it took longer than with most of them, but but you're furiously taking notes. And he, Dick had a habit of, of saying a, a profound statement with a lot of words in it. And, I'm st- <laughs> and then he would say, or you could say, and he would cut it about in half. Or you could say, and he'd cut it in, a, in another half. Or you could say, we might even characterize it as profound miracle. And I would go... I could have saved half a ream of paper, but, but after a while, you got into the habit of just sitting there, and when he would say something profound, you would wait until you got the fifth or sixth iteration. Uh, now, had you had a brain in your head, uh, which I was uh, not totally... Anyway, I, what he would say would, would be like a diamond, and every iteration he would speak would be like looking through one of the facets of the stone, and you would see a lot of brilliance there but you needed them all really to see the full brilliance of the stone. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, in In a very short amount of time, he's simply saying that the sufferings and the death are what's going to come. And that was Gaffin's message about the whole of the New Testament, in particular, the Pauline epistles, which are more than half of the New Testament. Uh, he said, if you have to combine all of the Pauline epistles into one word, suffering was the word he chose. Uh, which is very profound in a lot of ways and for a lot of reasons. If you look back here in Luke chapter 9 to verse 22, uh, Jesus is uh, talking about his death to his disciples and he strictly charges and, and commands them to tell this of no one saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raped. Jesus never gets off of this uh, this kind of... Um, calibration with his disciples because that is why he has come. Uh, Something to keep in mind, especially as we move through the rest of these vignettes. Verse 45, the disciples, of course, are not, they're not ready and Jesus knows they're not yet ready. So not only does he have them not hear carefully what he says, but he has them not uh, even be able to respond. He's concealing Uh, his meaning from them. Luke doesn't want us to be ignorant, however. Again, Luke is writing uh, this history after he knows all about the cross and the resurrection. So Luke is giving us an early warning, if you will, because we are not blinded. The gospel is not hidden from us, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit. However, we too have a tendency to take our eyes off of Jesus and the cross, So the vignette uh, in these verses is simply be courageous, fearless, focused on Jesus and the cross as a Christian in the 21st century. The next vignette, verses 46, 7, and 8. An argument, this is verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. (laughs) You think, are you kidding? How could you possibly have just entertain the thoughts, the visions, the miracles, the experiences, and immediately break into an argument about who is the great. But remember again, they don't know what you know. Uh, these, these uh, we, have to, we have to keep that in mind here. 
Uh, but it is amazing, verse 46. After all of this, the, the disciples are arguing over uh, who is the greatest. But I would suggest to you that even though we do know all of the story, we do exactly the same thing. Uh, we tend to argue about denominations. Uh, oh, well, they're, they're uh, one of those. Uh, God goodness. Um, uh, or they were dunked in a swimming pool uh, or, or whatever. There are a hundred ways we have of, of trying to, to feel that we're better uh, or greater than others. So we are not immune by any stretch of the imagination, only have much less reason uh, to feel this way than these disciples do at this point. Uh, verses 47 and 48, Jesus responds to them. Interestingly, but Jesus, verse 47, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Uh, this is a pattern, of course, with Jesus. He will, uh, he will bring uh, suffer the little children to come unto him. He, he loves children and he brings them uh, to his side whenever uh, it is not just useful to do. I have a, a feeling, especially when you see the way Jesus appears to be, uh, I won't say losing patience. Well, that's probably not that. As long as you don't, I'm not implying that Jesus was sinning but I can see that, that Jesus is having to be very long-suffering with these disciples. Uh, and I have a feeling that from time to time he enjoyed the company of children. Uh, I think none of us uh, is immune to that. Uh, but at any rate, 47 and 48, he places a child beside him. Whoever is least among you all is the one who is great. Uh, if you go forward to Luke chapter 18... Verse 15, this is another child event. Verse 15 of 18 says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, complete openness. Um, frankly, it, it's sort of the essence of the man with, with the son uh, who had the demonic spirit. Uh, I get that feeling from him. Of when faith becomes, uh, I realize it's a completely impossible thing and I don't understand it, but Lord help me. Uh, that to me is a childlike <clears throat> Response, But uh, by at least chapter 18, the disciples are still struggling to understand this. Uh, again, we don't have anything to boast about either. Uh, we, we often uh, leave behind uh, the humbleness that we knew as a child, the, the simple faith that we knew as a child, uh, not to be reading in and focusing on ourselves. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful illustration of this at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, really the entire chapter, but I'll begin in, in verse 10. 
uh, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there is no there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And he goes on uh, in verse 20, who is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And that entire first chapter of 1 Corinthians is an illustration of this vignette. Uh, between the disciples and uh, and their argumentation about who is greatest. The bottom line is none of us are greatest. That's why the reformed tulip begins with a T. That's total depravity. Uh, that's not exactly an advertising slogan. Actually, it is being revealed in some quarters as an advertising slogan. At any rate, uh, we're going to the fourth vignette here. This is simply two verses, verses 49 and 50. Keeps moving in this very staccato manner here. Luke chapter 9, verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Again, very, very interesting, these short little snippets of, of Jesus revealing the entirety of these eight. And think about Gaffin's diamond again. Every one of these eight is another facet of a stone for the cost of discipleship. Every one of these eight gives you another insight of what it's going to mean and what, uh, what the cost will be. In verse 49, Maybe they're jealous. They, they see somebody casting out demons, which remember they were just incapable of doing themselves. And we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Uh, Jesus says, don't stop him. Uh, the disciples' problem, of course, is that the others were not in the inner circle. Uh, indeed, they probably, since they had just failed uh, to be able to cast out demons, uh, they probably had a little bit of... Um, uh, need uh, to uh, lash out and not be shown up this way. Kent Hughes, interestingly, sees this as self-importance. Uh, here's his quote, self-importance is a cancerous sin. And that is absolutely the case across the board, uh, not just in the church, anywhere. Um, uh, but again, we do the same when we think uh, about... Um, what church we belong to, what denomination we belong to, all of these kinds of things, what seminary we went to. Uh, I don't know how many times I've been in, in uh, groupings of seminarians and have them say, so-and-so, I just read a book by so-and-so. And the first question, they'd be, well, what seminary do you go to? As if that's going to tell them, uh, pro or con. Um, I've, I've, I've never known an individual, nor would I expect, that there ever would be an individual on planet earth from John Calvin uh, to the apostle Paul 
that did everything exactly right. There are going to be many good things to be learned from many people that you wouldn't necessarily want to, to learn everything from them. And the same, of course, is true of ourselves. Uh, but what Jesus is saying is that other Christians are not the enemy. There are some wonderful illustrations of this. If you turn to Numbers, way back up in the front, uh, Numbers chapter 11. I'll give you a couple of these uh, passages. Numbers 11, here's how Moses responded when he encountered this. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's exactly what Jesus is is trying to get across to these folks. Uh, Paul had, uh, of course, Paul had good reason being one who was out trying to uh, physically destroy and murder all the Christians before he became a Christian himself. Uh, In the opening of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Uh, So Paul is getting this. Uh, I'll just give you the notation here. I won't turn there. John the Baptist learned this. You may remember that that conversation. When Jesus starts baptizing, people run to John the Baptist and say, hey, uh, did you know Jesus is baptizing? And John tells them, of course. I've got to decrease so he can increase. That, again, is another illustration of what uh, Jesus is teaching these disciples here. Uh, The point is we all come up short and uh, whomever, whatever, but, but uh, Christ is proclaimed. That's the important thing here. Now, here you come to what I'll call an intermission in this uh, ninth chapter of Luke because verse 51 says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything we've been looking at relative to Jesus so far has been up north in the Galilee. Now, Jesus has has transitioned in the middle of these vignettes uh, into what is the central section of the Gospel of Luke. This journey to Jerusalem is going to be almost 11 chapters long. Uh, it's, It's... from verse 51 of chapter 9 to verse 27 of chapter 19. That's the journey into Jerusalem. Uh, Luke has 27 parables. Of those 27, 18 of them are unique to Luke. That's one of the aspects you get with Luke uh, that, uh, that one of the most uh, 
thrilling, frankly, aspects you get to, to Luke. Of those 18 unique parables to Luke, 16 of those 18 are going to be in this section that we're entering right now. So this is, uh, this is the beginning of something brand new. Now, you get from that to verse uh, 51 to 56, another vignette. 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Um, well, let me, if you can see this part, uh, realize it's far away right in the back there, but that little squiggly line that goes west of the Jordan River here is roughly the area of Samaria. Uh, west Bank that, that you hear about today is a, sort of the 21st iteration of the area of Samaria. Everything we've been doing has been up here so far, uh, but now he's, he's going to head to Jerusalem, which is right here. Uh, but he's going to, to do so by coming straight down into Samaria. Now, most Jews would never, ever have done that. They would have gone across the Jordan River and come down the, the eastern side and come back in. But uh, Jesus is apparently going into Samaria, and he sends messengers out ahead of him uh, in order to prepare his entry. Uh, Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. You see a common pattern starting to show up in these vignettes. The disciples uh, immediately think uh, that um, it's, it's totally black and white. You either take it or we're going to consume you in one way or another. We'll get rid of the children. We'll consume the villages. Uh, and in every case, Jesus says, hold on, uh, you're missing the point. Uh, so he's going to, to Samaria. Now, what's the problem with Samaria? Why doesn't the village accept him? Uh, let me just give you a passage. I'm not going to read it all. I'll read some of it. It's 2 Kings Chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. It goes through verse 41. That's the whole chapter. Uh, so I'm not going to read all of that, but just the beginning will give you a hint. Verse 24, 2 Kings 17. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Abba, Hamath, and Saravaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria, of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Uh, verse 27, then the king of Assyria commanded Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. If you go through the rest of that chapter, you'll see that that doesn't work. The priest comes in and teaches them something other than uh, what you and I want them to hear from Scripture. So what happens, that was the king of Assyria. 
what the Assyrians always did when they conquered a land is they would go in, take captive the people, and relocate them so a center of opposition would not develop because the Assyrian Empire was so large they couldn't, frankly, keep a lid on everything. They couldn't afford to have rebellions popping up everywhere. So their solution was to take all the inhabitants here and move them. The inhabitants here were called Israel, if you go through the prophets. Isaiah in particular, where you've got the southern kingdom of Judah, from Jerusalem down this way, tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the northern ten tribes known as Israel, went up all the way up here to Dan. Uh, so they were the people uh, in here. They were the ones that lost out first. 722 BC is when the Assyrians came in and took everything and relocated all of those 10 tribes never have been really identified or found to this day. So when Jesus starts coming into Samaria, he's coming into people from all over the Middle East who have never been uh, in touch with anything that we would call Christian. And that's the problem. That's why the people in the village, it's not that they're mad that he's going to Jerusalem, is mad that they, they don't want anything to do. You remember the, when John, the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, that's, that's why that, that uh, vignette there is so powerful because Jesus would even speak. Normally a Jew would be unclean if he just set foot in the region of Samaria. Uh, so Jesus doesn't worry about that. He's gonna go through Samaria anyway, but the Samaritans are not gonna like it. And John and the rest of the disciples said, let's just wipe them all out. Jesus said, no, no, a little premature. So verses 54, 55, 56, they react, the disciples react unmercifully. Jesus rebukes them. Uh, if you get, uh, John, by the way, learns this lesson. I'll just give you another text. Acts chapter eight, verse 25, you will read that John, after Pentecost, as he begins his, uh, his full-fledged, uh, work as a disciple of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit, he pointedly goes into Samaria with the gospel. So John is going to learn this. All of these disciples are going to learn this, but right now uh, they're not quite there yet. So the lesson here is simply to be merciful uh, with everyone we encounter with the gospel. The gospel is to go to every human being on the planet whether or not uh, they're Muslims, we, maybe that would be a good analogy today. Uh, not far from the same region. Uh, we might think, well, because today that West Bank area, Samaria, old Samaria would be occupied uh, by Palestinians, mostly Muslims. And we think, well, Muslims are struggling. No, no, the gospel goes to everybody. Uh, the Lord determines who are his. So you move to the next vignette, verses 57 and 58. Uh, let's see. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And that's the entirety of the vignette. So what's he saying here? It's almost a tangent. You almost get the point that you get the idea that Jesus is walking away from this person as he's saying it. Uh, it's, it's as if he's read his heart and he, he you know, the man, whoever this is, has zeal. Uh, someone, it says, someone said to him, 
but uh, the someone didn't count the cost. Uh, he saw the glory, perhaps, hard to say. Think about uh, Philippians chapter two, the beginning of chapter two in Philippians, where Jesus empties himself of his glory. Again, it's the same consistent message throughout. Jesus is saying, you don't understand. You can be a Christian, you can follow me, but don't think that means health and wealth gospel, which more Americans are being attuned to as we sit here, as we are speaking here, most Americans are getting a message of become a Christian and you'll get wealthy. Uh, everything will go well. All of your diseases will vanish. None of that is biblical in the least. And Jesus keeps saying, look, even the son of man doesn't have a place uh, to lay his head. So lesson be sober and self-examining in your commitment uh, to Christ. And then verses 59 and 60, the next vignette. To another, Jesus said to that person, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And again, you, you read this and you say, that's kind of heartless. Um, most of the commentators, by the way, given the, the nature of dealing with death and dying in the cultures of Israel in those days, believe that perhaps it wasn't that the man's father had died, but that he was dying. And the man is saying, we, I need to go back and, and be with my father uh, until, this, um, until he dies. It appears that he may be in that stage. And, and Jesus says, no, let the, let the dead bury the dead. Uh, there's no way and from where I stand to know what the truth is. But again, the message is the same. If you want to follow Jesus, uh, you can't be double-minded, whatever, the, even something so personal as that. And that pigtails uh, very nicely uh, with the final vignette, which is in verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's, you see why I wanted to sort of hustle through all eight of these. They, they, they build and the power from them becomes clearer and uh, more unified, but very sobering. And the issue of the whole of this uh, end of this ninth chapter uh, is that you need to count the cost. Being, being a Christian and calling yourself a Christian is something very serious. Uh, there's an ancient proverb, to look back when you're plowing means you're going to plow a crooked furrow. Some people make a lot out of that. Some people make a deal out of Elisha and Elijah, if you remember that uh, episode. Here's what J.C. Ryle had to say about it. Quote, those who look back want to go back. If we're looking back to anything in this world, we are not fit to be disciples of Christ. Um, psalm 90, verse one, the only psalm in the entire Psalter written by Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That is an attitude uh, that perhaps speaks to this. 
But again, what we have seen in Luke chapter 9 are these episodes that are very real in life and very understandable in life and very hurtful, frankly, in life. But it does not mean anything less than what Jesus is saying. We, we live in, a, in a, the, the wealthiest uh, culture that has ever existed in the world. And that Every time all of these things, houses, homes, vehicles, all of these kinds of things, it's another rope that attaches to you that must be broken some way or other. It does not mean that every Christian has to be an itinerant preacher and, uh, and leave the home forever and, and uh, abuse his family. Uh, but it does mean that, that being a follower of Christ is a difficult, thought-provoking, uh, serious issue. Uh, here's, here's a proposition. Given the world that we currently inhabit, suppose everything continues to go down like a brick, uh, among other things, frankly, because Christians are not speaking out in, in America today. I just finished last night. I finished a book uh, by Eric Metaxas. Some of you may know Eric. Eric uh, he wrote a wonderful biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, the German pastor who, who tried everything to get the Christians in Germany motivated. You could see Hitler coming. It was 1932. They all were meeting about this guy named Hitler. They knew who he was. They knew what was going to happen. And the church in Germany did nothing. Uh, Bonhoeffer, as you probably know, finally was, was put to death um, at the very end of, of World War II by the, by the Nazis. He had been imprisoned. Uh, for his role in a lot of things. Uh, the world we're in now is at least that bad. And Metaxas, the, the title of this book is A Letter to the American Church. And what he's trying to say is snap out of it. A lot like what Jesus is saying in these vignettes. Don't you know what it means to follow me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that you can trust me? Don't you know that I have truth? I have power. Get the job done. He, he ends with a fascinating illustration from Ronald Reagan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, all of Reagan's advisors told him, don't, don't ever say that. That's bad detente. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's not going to be uh, well received. Uh, Reagan said it, and it was as if uh, the world changed for the Soviet Union, and the whole Soviet Union was down within two years of that. Uh, Metaxas's point is Christian speak. Don't hide in your holy huddles and think, well, people, what will people think of me? What blah, blah, blah. So my illustration is suppose we continue silent and the world continues silent and everything goes to rock bottom the way we frankly think it's going to go. And Jesus comes walking into your life and it says, follow me. We would probably say, no, the whole situation is too unsettling, too uncertain, too dangerous. I can't do it. But suppose God comes in, brings a revival, and everything reverses, and we're just, the stock market goes to 50,000, 75,000. Everybody is, is just uh, hunky dory, and then Jesus walks in and says, follow me. Then we're going to say, no, I can't do it because, I've, goodness, I've got way too much to lose. Now I've accumulated all this stuff. So again, these vignettes, even though they're short, even though what, what we need to see is the seriousness that Jesus takes in someone following him. 
it is not a statement to be made lightly. And I don't mean just somebody who chooses to be a missionary or go to a seminary. I'm talking about anybody who wants to be a Christian. Is Jesus first in our hearts? That is the bottom line. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for this, these little vignettes. They are so brief that, uh, it, it, again, is astounding the way Scripture can speak to us with such brevity and yet such power. Uh, Father, there is just the one question. Is Jesus first in our hearts? Are we following? Will we follow? Regardless of what that means, regardless of threats, regardless of what our friends who are not believers may think of us, are we willing to bring the topic of Jesus up in a conversation with an unbeliever? Uh, If not, Father, forgive us and help us uh, to be motivated, to be humbled, to be empowered, to have faith, strong, strong faith, and know that it is you that does everything, and we are privileged to be your children. Help us to be followers. Help us to put Jesus first in our hearts. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.